our Conversations with the Remarkable Minds segment. My guest, as I mentioned earlier and gave her bio, is Dr. Sylvia Errol. She is clearly one of America's great oceanographers and a great ocean explorer. And she has been doing this for a long time. On our last program, she gave us a very good understanding of why we are indeed related to the oceans. Most people who are not right on the ocean and enjoy it aesthetically don't see that connection. Nice to have you back with us today, Dr. Earl. It's great to be back on board. I'm going to just ask you uh, one good question and take your time and explore it as you will. At this moment, there's a great deal of hoopla over the U.N. Climate Change Conference uh, in Copenhagen, and the issue on global warming constantly returns over and over again to the polluting technologies and of greenhouse gases and CO emissions and melting ice sheets and what's occurring on terrestrial land where people live. Yet there is a much larger expanse of the Earth's surface, like the planet's oceans, that usually take a back seat in the debate. And people just take it for granted that the oceans are there. Could you go into some depth of why we have to be aware of what's going on with the oceans and pay attention to them? I will certainly get, do my best. I actually tried to explain some of this in the, the book that has just come out called The World is Blue, National Geographic published it, and it's, um, it was an earnest attempt to reflect on why the oceans matter, to show that they're in trouble, they're not infinitely able to recover from what we're putting in and what we're taking out, and in particular with regard to the, the current focus on climate change and global warming, the ocean is Earth's thermal regulator and drives climate and weather generates most of the oxygen in the atmosphere and takes up most of the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. There are a number of issues at at stake here, one of them being that because of the excess CO2 that has been generated by our activities, largely the burning of, of forests that were locked away as coal and oil and methane, uh, not just forests, but other organic material in the sea as well as on the land, now being tapped and consumed in the blink of a geologist's eye. I mean, we're talking deposits of, of carbon that were laid down hundreds of, of millions of years ago that we have been been burning in the last century, mostly the last half century, and the pace is picking up adding an unusual amount of CO2 to the atmosphere. We need some CO2 because that's what drives photosynthesis. And for a very long time, the amount of CO2 remained very stable. But in my lifetime, that well, actually even preceding at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that amount, as we hear over and over again, it began to climb. And the, the climb has begun to significantly increase, and not just gradually anymore, but uh, essentially it's it's accelerating at a rate that is breathtaking, and maybe literally breathtaking. We don't know the consequences of how much impact the warming trend will have on the systems land and sea that heretofore have, we've taken for granted the air we breathe, the, the steady ups and downs of climate within a range that is hospitable for us. But we may see, as a consequence of the the, the simple thing, it seems so 
harmless when we began to do it, burning coal, burning oil, burning other fossil fuels that have actually altered the nature of planetary chemistry. Could you go into you that a little deeper, uh, Dr. Right, Errol? On, on the atmosphere, but the ocean, the chemistry of the ocean is changing. It's becoming more acid. And, and we're worried about climate change, but this other effect on the ocean itself, the chemistry of the planet, shifted because of the carbon dioxide. It's the, the flip side of the worry of, of warming and climate change. It's, it's planetary change because the oceans are becoming acid. Could you go in a little depth on uh, coal? Because today coal is a big issue, particularly the myth of clean coal. What are some of the more detrimental effects beyond just the pH of the ocean changing from the coal industries uh, on the oceans? Well, a lot of soot is generated with the burning of coal and, of course, the CO2 itself. And it, it, is, it adds more CO2 to the atmosphere when it's burned than say gas, gas is, they say it's cleaner than uh, oil, oil, and oil is cleaner than coal. Uh, there's a range of how much CO2 is, is uh, lost to the atmosphere in the, in the process. And of those three options, coal is the one that is the, is the one that generates uh, more problems, and it is the combination of CO2 and, and soot that and also mercury that goes into the atmosphere and falls back on land and sea. It comes back to us when we consume uh, ocean wildlife, but it's it's not good for the ocean in other respects as well. Some of these things in small amounts uh, are accommodated, but we have heretofore thought that the the natural systems are so resilient that we can do just about anything and get away with it. It's only now, right at this point in history, that we're beginning to connect the dots between uh, the burning of coal, the mercury in fish, CO2 in the atmosphere, and the consequences right now, not just 20, 50, 100 years from now, or 1,000, but even right now, we are suffering from the, the downside of tapping this energy source. Now, there's another downside that is just almost too terrible to contemplate, and that is how it's extracted. Coal is, it requires the heavy impact on the areas from which it's taken. The mountaintop removal in, in Appalachia is, is a really horrible story environmentally the, the cost to rivers the cost to wildlife the cost to forests if people really understood the real cost of extracting coal i think they'd say no they're, they're, and particularly now that there are alternatives and there have been alternatives that we've simply neglected over the last few decades because oil was cheap coal was cheap or it appeared to be cheap what we weren't putting on the balance sheet is the real cost of extraction, the real cost back to us when we burn large quantities of these materials. If we put the real costs on the balance sheet, it would be prohibitively expensive if you value your life. 
Could you give us an idea of where the oceans are at greatest threshold of tipping? Uh, is it in the fish supply, and how many people in the world uh, depend upon that fish supply? Or is it in uh, the dead zones? Give us your view of the ocean since we haven't been where you've been, and we need to see through your eyes uh, the reality that you're, you have become aware of that the rest of us are not yet aware of. I think one thing that's coming into focus very quickly is how important it is to protect what remains of the natural world, the integrity of living systems on the land and certainly in the sea. Until right about this point in time, the value of, of, of forests, the value of healthy, intact ocean ecosystems, the value of living fish, the value of coral reefs, has largely been considered uh, almost a luxury, an option. That it's, they're, they're beautiful, they're diverse, they lift our spirits. It's, it's great to have the integrity of these systems because somehow it appeals to our hearts and souls that, that going to a intact redwood forest or to uh, even a, a healthy meadow or, or prairie reminds us of, of our connections to nature. But now we understand it's not a luxury. It's a, it's, it's a necessity. And not just because of spiritual needs or because of, of the aesthetic values, but because they keep us alive. Where does oxygen come from? It comes from the natural world. Uh, we don't generate it. It's not something that comes out of rocks unbidden. It comes from the, the process of photosynthesis on the land and in the sea. And it's been going on for hundreds of millions of years. We are the beneficiaries, along with all the rest of life on Earth. These processes that shape the world. Only now that we are understanding how we have the power to disrupt, to undermine the way the natural world works. Climate change is a big wake-up call. The acidification of the ocean is another one. The way that in 50 years we've managed to clog the ocean with plastics that didn't exist when I was a child, but now they're interfering with the, the natural food webs in the sea. Uh, interfering with the chemistry of the ocean because as plastics break down or even when they're intact, they leak um, chemicals into the surrounding ocean. All of this is now coming back to uh, cause us to understand that if we really do want to have a future, not just for our children and all those who follow, but even in our lifetime, an increasingly healthy prosperous world instead of one that is decreasingly healthy and with decreasing prosperity on the horizon for us as well as for all of those who follow we must take care of the water the atmosphere and the wild creatures the millions of other species that hold the planet together it is not a luxury it's not an option either or we must it's like taking care of your heart if you really want to have a a planet that works, if you want the blue heart of the planet to keep functioning, the ocean, then we need to be mindful that when we take a fish out of the ocean, it's a piece of what makes the ocean function. The most important value of fish is not fish to consume, but rather because they really are integral parts of what keep 
the ocean healthy. They're part of the food chain. They're part of the chemical chain that that maintains the integrity of a system that works. And what we've been putting into the ocean affects the fish. It affects the sea lions, the dolphins, whales, and birds who consume all of these things. Uh, but it affects us, too, when we take whatever it is that we have put into the sea. It comes back to us in, in disturbing ways. But most importantly, the large-scale, industrial-scale extraction of wildlife from the sea is destabilizing the chemistry of the ocean, destabilizing the, the physical nature of the ocean, causing a loss of, an, of resilience of those systems that we rely on for every breath we take, for every drop of water that falls out of the sky connected back to the sea. We, we've just been oblivious to how the ocean and the creatures who live there affect us Could, with our everyday lives. I, I would like to ask you a philosophical question, if I may. Mm. Um, I believe that most people would say they are oblivious because they simply don't have the expertise or insight to know better. However... We are also that type of creature that is unique in that we can hold two completely opposite positions simultaneously. We can say we have love for someone and then exercise hate in our actions. We can say we are kind and do unkind things. We can, we can argue both sides virtually at any given moment, which confuses people by the duality of our consciousness. The spiritual side, which is fully present and conscious at all times, the conditioned self, which is the total sum of all the positive and negatives that we have learned and we have trusted at different times, even we know that they are not as authentic, not to be trusted as much as the spiritual side. So then we end up in this duality. For example, do we eat fish, knowing that the fish supplies are dwindling, like the bluefin tuna is up to uh, it's it's up to 95 percent gone in many cases, as are cod and many types of sharks. And yet there was recently this film, and I'm I'm sure you must have been aware of it if not seen it, on the lagoon about the uh, investigative reporters that, that went into this particular bay in Japan and showed that the tuna were being brought into this. Uh, herded into this lagoon, and then the babies and the whole families were being hacked to death, and and the tunas were aware that the, their loved ones were dying and would stick beside their loved ones as they were suffering and dying. It, it was just a horrible experience. This, uh, the film to, you're referring to is called The Cove. The Cove, yeah. And it's about dolphins, actually. Uh, but what concerned me was not just that the people would do this, but that the Japanese population have not reduced their desire for tuna or the average person, their desire for tuna or fish, or even at a point where we were eating whale meat. So are we really in denial or are we fully complicit? We just don't want to change. And therefore, it's like someone saying, I didn't know cigarettes would cause cancer. <laughs> would you know, you know, and, and I can't accept this any longer. I'm not going to accept it any longer. I refuse to accept that we're this stupid and this indifferent. I believe we're fully conscious of the choices we make. We just don't like the outcome when they work against us. Your thoughts, please. Well, your your description of of what was happening was was that one film called The Cove was primarily about dolphins and dolphin meat is sold in Japan. It's actually provided to school children and it's insidious because dolphins 
have a 100% diet of fish and and they are therefore loaded with the very toxic materials that, that you really don't want in you. And uh, dolphins are dying because of the toxins and it is not good for us either. With respect to the tunas, tunas are herded as well in a similar kind of macabre scene in the Mediterranean. It's a process or a phenomenon known as the matanza, where they, the, the dolphins are in this case, the tunas are coming to the Mediterranean to spawn. And the last thing you'd want to do, if you really do want tunas, for whatever purposes, to eat or to have, because they're fantastic creatures alive, like lions and tigers and things, they, they, they're herded in and killed at the very time that they're there to reproduce. It's, it's really crazy. The tunas are so depressed in numbers that the only hope for having tunas in the future is to simply stop killing them. It, it did work with whales. We stopped killing them after their numbers were almost hopelessly depressed. But the good news is that when we did stop killing them and began protecting those areas that we knew were breeding areas and feeding areas, as with the gray whales in the western parts of, of North America, the Mexican breeding areas, the feeding areas up in Alaska and elsewhere, and all along the way, they generally are protected, and they have, at least to a significant extent for gray whales, recovered. Other species have not recovered quite so uh, obviously, including the northern right whale in the North Atlantic. Their numbers are only about 300 individuals. And even though we've stopped outright killing them, they're still being killed through entanglement with with discarded fishing nets and through collision with, with vessels, with ships. But there, the, the good news is that once you know you've got a problem, whether it's smoking or uh, eating too much of the, the wrong substances, you you know and then you can take action. Even if you know some people won't take action, some people still smoke even though it's, they know it's not good for them, could shorten their lives. Um, but Oh, a great many more people have stopped because they know. We need to do this to, to get the message out for the, the connection between maintaining the integrity of the ocean, the consequences of, of killing so many fish, and the destructive means that are used to catch fish. When you order a shrimp cocktail, be mindful that when you... When you take a bite of one of those shrimp, the, the real cost of getting it there is reflected in 10 times or sometimes as many, as much as 100 times the amount of life that is killed for every bite of shrimp that you take, the, the bycatch, so-called. When a shrimp is captured because nets or trawls are dragged across the ocean floor, the number of creatures that are captured in the process, the destructive bulldozer-like effect of a trawl on the ocean floor has to be put on the balance sheet. Yes, you can get shrimp that way, but look at what is lost, what is what it costs to capture the shrimp. If people understood that, they might make a different choice. I certainly have. I don't. I can't barely eat shrimp or uh, wild fish because I, I do have an appreciation for the real cost. I've seen what happens when a trawl goes across the ocean floor. And I know the value of these creatures alive to keeping me alive. They are what 
famous writer of years ago, Aldo Leopold, called the cogs, the wheels, the nuts and bolts that hold the world together. He was speaking of, of terrestrial wildlife, but it is equally applicable to wildlife in the sea. And when I say wildlife, I mean cod, herring, tuna, swordfish, grouper, snapper, clams, oysters, all those wild creatures that keep the ocean healthy and intact and keep us healthy and intact just by them doing what they do. But wouldn't, in the end, it really be simple if we simply were vegan? If, if we were... Vegans. Oh, vegan. Well, eating a low on the food chain is, is probably, going forward, not going to be uh, an option. We, we have to eat lower on the food chain. That means plants in their wondrous, diverse forms. About half the calories that people consume today come from a handful of, of plants, basically three, rice, corn, and wheat. There are about 100 other plants that contribute variously to our diet, and either directly or indirectly, because we consume animals that are plant eaters, uh, for the most part, those that we raise, cows, chickens, pigs, turkeys, all plant eaters. But when we turn to the ocean, most of what we take are carnivores. It's, it doesn't make sense. It can't supply enough to keep us in calories. Uh, realistically, we, we have overdrawn the assets from the natural world in terms of taking wildlife. We couldn't support ourselves at, at now 6.5 billion people if we relied on terrestrial animals for the protein that we consume uh, that, that, are, that come from the wild. <laughs> Songbirds? How many songbirds could we uh, afford to take before they're simply gone? How many little furry things? How many deer? Uh, before, uh, if we took them on a commercial scale, the way we take wildlife out of the sea, we would very quickly run out of food. And we are quickly running out of, of animals from the sea that can supply our appetite for them. For us to feed ourselves not only for what we have now, let alone, uh, but, but to think at, a, at another billion or another two billion, where are we going to go for the calories? has to be low on the food chain. has to be more plants. has to be, if we're going to have protein from animals, we're going to have to grow those animals. And they can't be carnivores. They can't be tunas that eat other fish, that eat other fish, that eat other fish, that eat other fish, and, and get down to the little crustaceans that eat the microbial forms of life that are providing most of the productivity for the, for the planet. We need to go low on the food chain, probably think of alternative forms of, of organisms to complement those that are providing most of the calories for us already. Uh, eating, eating seafood is a luxury right now. It's a tremendous luxury. It's not feeding starving millions for the most part. A few coastal communities are really reliant mostly on ocean wildlife for their protein. And some are, that's primarily their source of food of all sorts. But for mo most of the problems are not coming from those people who are totally reliant or significantly um, tied to ocean sources. 
we're talking about tuna fish for heaven's sakes that <laughs> that people that, that they're going for a high price a luxury item for sushi sashimi for tuna fish sandwiches from far from the source of where those tuna live and, and the same is true with cod with the large-scale species that are taken from the oceans of the world and shipped all over the world. They're not feeding communities and families that are living by the sea. By and large, they're feeding luxury tastes in restaurants that are thousands of miles from the ocean. Well, I appreciate you once again coming on and sharing these very important insights with us. After all, you've been there. You've spent thousands of hours, uh, approximately 7,000 hours underwater. So yours is a a perception that we really appreciate. And I want to thank you very much for coming on and being a part of our program. Well, the, the bottom line here is I care most of all about us, about people. I have children, I have grandchildren, and I like us. And, and we are the only species on the planet that has the power to destroy, but at the same time the power to heal, to use our good minds with the knowledge that we now have to turn things around. And it's for our security it's for our economic interests, it's for our health, but mostly it's for our future, for our life, that we need to take care of the natural systems that basically take care of us. Dr. Sylvia Errol, thank you very much. Oh, we look thank forward you for having to me back. Co- another conversation. I'll come and talk with you anytime. <laughs> All right. My guest, continuing with our conversations with Remarkable Minds, Dr. Sylvia, Sylvia Errol. Mm-hmm. 